0: So last time we were in Malachi was two weeks ago. I was gone last Sunday on vacation. And I'm I'm pleased to say that as a family, we went on vacation, didn't have anything catastrophic happen. And in the past, we've had appendicitis, We've had storms hit, and we kind of get stranded out on the lake. I got a fish hook in the head one time, like big one, buried deep. And so we were fairly well without incident. And there's several moments that was just really sweet, this fact that there was no tragedies, you know. Uh, but there's a sweetness when you, when you find yourself in a, in a time, in a point. And I, I find this at times of rest, where you can take enough time and just take a breath and slow down, because our culture is so crazy, isn't it? You know, and if COVID taught us one thing during that time, it's like, wow, there's something really nice about not having anything to do. And what we find is that we are kind of ramped up into the busyness of life, and there's some certain aspects we can't help that, but yet in those moments of rest, those moments of vacation, I found that even to, to take some time and just to breathe and to look out and to experience what God has for you. And the, the phrase that comes to my mind is like, man, there's a goodness here. God is good. And not just because of where I'm at and the fact that I have rest, but because of everything that's around me and even the people that are around me. And there's, there's such beauty in all aspects that God has orchestrated around us. And I think we too often don't slow down enough to, to realize it. One of the initiatives that we'd like to begin, that we will be engaging in as fall starts, you know our ministry season ramps up about mid-September as we make some... Some shifts. So we're in the midst of the summer, and so we have our our service in summers from 9.30 to 10.30. And then once the school year starts, we're going to be having a kickoff Sunday coming up on September 18th. And you'll hear more information about this as, as it comes. And September 17th, the day before, we're having a concert that will just kind of be a part of that engaging weekend for hopefully connection and worship. And then we're, starting on the 25th of September, we're going to engage a little bit with that question, following the service for part of our Grow Group time. We're going to engage with the question, why is God good? And we've got a number of people, you, who are going to be engaging and basically saying, hey, let me tell you why God is good. And so I want you to kind of be ready to hear some of what is coming up so that you can be anticipating, wow, I'd like to hear why God is good in Brad's life. I'd like to hear why God is good in Lane's life. And I really want to whet your appetite for that because I think it can be really a time of sweetness as we start to hear from each other about why God is good. And that relates a little bit to our experience. I wrote about it in the email yesterday. God is good even in the midst of dropping off your first child off to college and then driving away, you know? God is good because now the house will probably be cleaner. You know, the, the the chaos of the personality that has left the home will likely help it to ma- maintain the house. And yet there's this piece of it's like, wow, these changes, and I don't know that I like these changes, and then you want to go back to how things were when they were first born or when they were younger, and then you realize the energy that it took then. It's like, no, I really don't want that either. And so what you find is even in the midst of these changes in life, God is good, And in fact, what what I'm convinced that we're going to see, I want us to see, it's it's here in this passage, and it actually speaks to it, and it's revealed in two specific verses in the passage we're going to look at today, but God is great. He's not only good, but He's great, and you can't stop His greatness, and He's going to reveal His greatness no matter what you do or don't do. It doesn't change who God is, and it doesn't change His character, it doesn't change the reality of His goodness, it doesn't change the reality of His greatness, and I want us to be able to see that this morning. So uh, one of the things that, as we're dropping off Hannah, our oldest off to college, I couldn't help but, because Sarah and I were both alums of Crown College, and that's where our daughter is now, Crown College. And so you go back to the campus, and you have all of these memories that kind of flood. I remember when I went off to college there, and my parents, I got the boot from my dad in the butt, and said, bye-bye, see you later. And that's kind of it, you know? So like they drove away, and I, here I am, and you, you kind of make things go as they will. But it was a wonderful experience for me. But in the midst of this college experience, something really great happened to Sarah when she first came onto campus and she met me. <laughs> you know? It took me about three years to convince her that I was okay to go out with once, you know? And anyway, long story short, we, we ended up getting married. But in the midst of this, so this college experience and all these memories come back to me, I remember some of these interactions that she and I had, and I don't want Hannah to have any of those because guys are bad. I told her that as we were leaving. Boys are bad. Keep, <laughs> keep this in mind, all right? Um, college is good. Roommates good. Boys bad. But in the, in the midst of it, I, I remember even going through all of the sequences of my years at college and when Sarah and I even got engaged. And we got engaged down to a, at a park near where we were at. It was, it's really a wonderful story. She was coming back. I was, I'd graduated from, from college. I was actually working here at the time. So those who, were, who are old, you may remember this, okay? <laughs> those who are not old don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, so I, I'm here, and I'm, I'm single, and I'm going to, when she's coming back to Crown for her senior year, I'm going to go and, and propose. And so I had it all worked out. I had, I had bought the ring. I had, I had financed it, you know, pr- planned out my finances down to, I, I had $11 left. I had the choice. Am I going to buy a boat or am I going to buy a ring? I decided to buy both. Uh, and so I had $11 left. And that's really all I had at the point after I bought, bought the ring. And... So I had it planned out, and so pick her up or whatever. It's a long story. I don't want to go into that. All bottom line is, I was in a wedding. We had to go get my tuxedo, and in this process, I have virtually like 15 minutes to go get the tuxedo. So we're driving to get the tuxedo, and I already had it planned that I was going to propose, but she was like three hours late, four hours late. It's like it's her parents' fault for driving so slow uh, to getting back to campus, and I'm taking her. We're going to go get my tuxedo. And I stop at the park that we used to go to. She says, what are you doing? <laughs> it's like, well, I know what I'm doing. She doesn't know what I'm doing. She says, we've got to go get your tuxedo. <sighs> this is important. I just thought, we'll walk along the beach that we used to walk on. Okay, so we're doing that. Well, you can't walk in your shoes, you know, so I slipped off bare, you know, go barefoot in the sand. It's like, and so we don't have time for this. And so instead of just a casual stroll across the beach, we're walking like Mach, Mach 9. Okay. You know, one no, it's just like you, you get these things in your mind I have to make it work like I thought it doesn't work that way. And so we start on one of the beach and we're going oh, oh, oh. And I get to the other and I, I go oh Oh, I stepped on something. I sit down on a rock, and as I sit down on the on the rock, I took the ring, which was now palmed in my hand, and I slipped it on my toe. And I said, "Oh, you're gonna have to you have to take a look at it, whatever." And I, I hold up my toe. Very romantic. Okay, a lot of, a lot of guys get on one knee. I got on my tush and raised up my foot at her face, you know, and and there was a ring, and then I proposed, et cetera, et cetera. But but well, I know it's right. She said yes. Well, I, But I want us to to recognize there was something, you know, I I bought that ring, and it was expensive, you know? And it was worth it. And there was a reason I could have got, let's be honest, could have got cubic zirconium, right? You could have. But I didn't. Why? I got a diamond. And diamonds, they say, are a girl's best friend. Okay, I'm bypassing this one. One of these is diamond. One of these is cubic zirconia Any jewelers? Does anyone know? I mean one's real and authentic and one is a cheap imitation. I'm just curious. Who thinks the one in the bottom left is the real one? Just raise your hand. Okay. I won't hold you to it. Okay, four of you, five of you, six maybe. What about the upper right? Wow. You're all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But but here's here's the point. Sometimes, you know, we we can't, we I'm not a jeweler, but you can make things look so good, but all it is is a cheap imitation. God doesn't want the cheap imitation. He wants the real thing. Well, doesn't that make God selfish? I think we're going to see a picture that that's, that's not the question. We get confused with our minds a lot of times as we interact with this type of, how can God be this God who wants and demands all this stuff? I hope that you see a different picture. I hope you can see the picture of God's greatness. I I want to illustrate the fact that when I proposed to Sarah, there was no question in my mind, I'm not going cubic zirconia. Why? Because she's worth the real thing. There's no—I can't afford the theres no—I have to give the real thing. And that, I think, is the message that we're going to see in the midst of this text this morning. Yes, God, in a sense, demands the real thing, and that's okay, that's good. But if we get stuck on why is God demanding it, we're missing the beauty within the text that we're going to be looking at here today. Okay, so this one talked about as well. I just want to say, you know, looking at those two rings, this reminded me as we were looking at it of when we just recently went through Galatians. And in Galatians, we came down on this verse, chapter 6, verse 1, I think, maybe it's 7. I don't remember. I may have typoed it. It's okay. Either way, it's in Galatians chapter 6. I know this. He says, Do not be deceived. He says, God can't be mocked. In other words... You can give him a cubic zirconia, but he's not going to think that it's a, it's a diamond. You can't fool him, okay? We looked at those rings, we were all, most of us, the majority of you were deceived. The others of you who guessed it right probably just guessed it right, unless you happen to be a jeweler and really knew what you were looking at. But the reality of it is we can't trick him. So in other words, when we come into the midst of worship, you can't fake worship. You can come and you can pretend all you want with your worship, but you're not fooling the one that it really matters. Does that make sense? You might be fooling the person next to you, but God, you cannot fool. He will not be mocked. And then mocked. And then he says, A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, we've read this before, will reap from the flesh. And the one who uh, sows to please the Spirit will reap from the Spirit. I just want you to understand this, this picture When we come to see how great God is, when we can can grow in our understanding of the greatness of God, I am convinced that our worship experience will also grow. In other words, the, the, the greater view I have of the genuine character of who God is, the more naturally I'm going to be drawn to worship that God. And the idea of what I'm giving becomes like... I'll never give him the cubic zirconia. It will only and always be the diamond because I recognize I have no choice in this. It's not an obligation. It's a love, and that's what we're going to see here this morning. Last time we were together in Malachi, sometimes referred to as Malachi, I've heard it both ways, it can be, he says, and this was a huge, this was the crux of last time we were together, this message. When God says to the people, I have loved you, and their response is, Huh? How have you loved us? They look at their circumstances like, what have you done for us? And he says, I have loved you, and I do love you more than you can ever know. And your questioning is like, how have you loved us? And then we got into verse 5, and this was powerful. He says, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. In other words, I have loved you, and it's for a greater purpose than just for you guys. You guys are going to be my mouthpiece. This is the Israelites, the Jews, and the whole world is going to be blessed because of me. And there's prophecy involved in that. I don't want to get in and spend all all of our. time with that. But this message comes to the Israelites at a time when they're under control of another nation. It's the Persians at the time. They've been under the Babylonians and now they're under the Persians and they've read the prophecies that have been given through Daniel that they're still going to be coming the Greeks, they're still becoming the Romans, though they don't know who those nations are yet at that time. In other words, there's a long road ahead and they look at God, how can you say you love us when you continue to let us be under the control of these other nations? And they're missing this really beautiful point of who God is. God is great and he's going to use Israel even beyond their borders. And so we step into this week in Malachi Chapter 1, verse 6. And he starts it off, and so following up with what we have, God's going to make his name great. He's going to go to all the nations. And then we look at this, and it says, a son honors his father. And remember, this is that same type of message that he's sending. He says, I have loved you, and you have said, how have you loved us? We're going to see that theme, that rhythm, that almost poetic language repeating throughout this section of passage as well. He says, a son honors his father, and a slave his master, If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. And so here's what's happening. Part of this is the culture that we're we're talking about and that they're navigating in here. Some of it we can relate to, but in all aspects, I think we can have a greater understanding of it. In the culture, and I think it should be our culture as well, it was incredibly, I don't know, natural is the right word, understood, It, it went without saying, that a son would honor his father. It just, there was a high respect piece here where it says, a son honors his father. That was a given, in other words. And so when he uses this, this phrase, he says, a son honors his father. And then he shifted down, skipped the next part and shifted down. If I am a father, you're not honoring me is what God is really saying. Yet you call me father, yet you're not giving me honor. And then let's shift back up and he says, and a slave, his master. Now, what's interesting with this, it, it uses this idea of honor, but there's something bigger, there's a different relationship. A, a, a slave does not have the same relationship with his master as a son does his father. So a, a son will honor his father, but the, the slave will respect or even fear his master. And that's what we're going to see here as it continues. So if I am a master, where is the respect, due me? Some of your translations may say, and I like the word, but we get so confused with the word, and so I think that's why the NIV has, has reverted. It's an accurate translation to use the word respect, but the word fear, when it's understood accurately, the word fear, I think is a better word. So really what it's saying is if I'm a master, where is the fear, do me? And two different illustrations come to my, my mind with this. One, and I'll share the other one, I think in a little bit here, The first, I remember when I was working most any job, but you know how the the phrase goes, when the cat's away, the mice will play, right? And when I was working in college at the Pizza Hut, we had the boss. His name was Jerry, Jerry Wickery. And he he was excellent. He was a great store manager. He knew what he was doing, and this store ran, I mean, it ran smooth when he was there. And when he wasn't there, lots of mistakes would happen complacency and things like that but when jerry was around you did things differently i was a driver and as a closing driver what you had different responsibilities instead of changing the oil at the end of the shift you had to clean the floors and when jerry wasn't there on a given night you know how the floors got cleaned Yeah, maybe you dampen a mop a little bit, you give it a little quick once-over, and you're done. When Jerry is there, you know how you're doing it? You're getting out the deck brush, and you're scrubbing till your arms are ready to fall off, and then you mop it up, and then you do it again, and you squeegee the floor, and you get it spotless. Why? Because the boss is there. The master is there. And so really what we have here is is Malachi, God through Malachi, is you this picture. It's like, here's this thing. You treat, God is, in a sense, saying to the people, you treat me with such complacency. You know, I I don't think it's like God's here demanding, hey, you've got to do this and this and this and this, or forget about it. I'll burn you. You're missing the message. I think the message here is grace. We're going to, in fact, see that in this passage in the midst of it. But really what he's saying is, hey, you call me Father. There's no honor. Who would know by looking at you that you honor me? You do certain things, and we're going to see that more clearly. You call me master. You know, we call Jerry boss. Yeah, whatever you say, boss. And then when Jerry's gone, yeah, I'll get by. The reality of it is whether Jerry's there, Jerry's not. I got to this point, and I don't really know what made the change, where I was like, okay, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I just, it's just something There was a conviction there, I think. And I was like, all right, I'm going to wash these floors like Jerry's here all the time. Don't consider myself overly spiritual, I'm not. I probably got paid per hour, and so it was actually lengthening out my time, okay? So it's probably still selfish in the midst of it. But, but there got to be this point where I'm going to do this job, how it's supposed to be done, whether he is here or not. And that's, in a sense, there's a heart behind this, and I want us to see the heart. Isaiah 29 reflects this. Oh, this is good. Jesus actually will quote this, and I'll show you that here in a second too. So in the the prophet Isaiah, verse 29, this is what the Lord says to him. He says, these people come near to me with their mouth. In other words, they say all the right things. They worship me by talking. They honor me with their lips. But here's the key. Oh, but their hearts are far from me. And if you catch anything from this morning that is the key. And then the next word on the next line to follow, he says, their hearts are far from me. Where is your heart in regards to worship? God is worthy of your worship, whether you worship him or not. But where's your heart when it comes to worship? And we can justify it in all kinds of ways. I get that. I understand that. Don't. Don't fall into that trap. The enemy wants you to justify it. He wants you to criticize different things. I get that. Okay, we've all been there. There's aspects that we like. There's aspects that we don't like. If I say anything that offends you this morning, that is not my goal. I'm just trying to paint this picture of reality and authentic worship, and it starts with a real and genuine heart. You can't hide. We already looked at that. You can't hide where your heart's at. You can pretend all you want to. You can fool everyone else in this room, including myself, but there's one that you can't fool, and this is not, whoa, whoa, this is heavy. You're missing it. You can't fool God with your heart. And so what does this mean? I'm going to approach this opportunity to worship. And I'll say, God, you already know my heart. And I'm sick. I'm messed up. I can't hide that from you. And I want to see your greatness. And as you see his greatness, you'll find that your heart is drawn to worship him because of his love, because of his greatness. And you will say, oh, nothing else matters. It's your grace. It's the fact that I'm accepted. All of these aspects, and I hope you will see that. So this is a powerful. He says, their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules that they have been taught. What's, what's God saying here? All I want you to do is worship me with your heart. In a a nutshell, that's really words. I want you to come. I want you to worship me, but I want you to worship me with your heart. Let it start from the heart. You worry about all doing all these right things and you're missing the point. Worship me with your heart. Come to the heart first and guess what? You're going to find a lot of things are going to be changing. He goes on. He says, therefore, once more, I will astound these people. In other words, I'm going to blow your minds. You're going to see this reminder with wonder upon wonder. With wisdom, the wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligent of the intelligent, the intelligence of the intelligent, will vanish. Okay, those who are all wise and those who are smart, boom, it's gone. It doesn't matter. What matters is where your heart is at. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from God. Who do their work in darkness and think, who sees this? Who will know? If I if I cut corners here, what's, is God really going to care? If I get a cubic zirconia, do you think Sarah will ever know? As long as she doesn't take it to a jeweler, I might be able to get by with a whole lot less money. Do you see the point? you turn things upside down. Oh, this is incredible. He says you're, t- you're taking this reality, and you're just kind of turning it on its head. You're flipping it upside down. You're getting it backwards. As if the potter were thought to be like the clay, the one who's creating it, somehow is the one that's being molded i've heard the phrase i didn't write it i don't know who did but he says god made man in his own image and we return the favor you follow the the thinking behind that god has created you as he wanted you to be and now i'm working at creating god the way i want him to be i want him to fit into my mold as opposed to letting him mold me shall what is formed say to the one who formed it you did not make me can the pot say to the potter, "You know nothing"? Can I just say something? It's, it's fairly controversial. I don't mean it to be controversial, but I just I see it here, and my heart aches when I look at our culture, and we miss this. We have in our culture a bunch of clay telling the potter who they are, and I know that's a controversial statement. I'm convinced that the potter is the one who has made the pots. He's the one that has formed the clay. He knows what he's doing. There's aspects I don't like about me. All kinds of things I wish God had done differently with me. You probably are in the same boat. Some of you, at least, are like, why did God make me this way? If he loves me, why did he do this to me? Why don't I be more like this? That was a horrible sentence. I'm sorry that you had to hear that. I made a lot of mistakes last time, too. For instance, Ephraim is not Jacob's son, which I said is Joseph's son. I messed up Joseph and Joshua, whatever. Sorry about all that stuff. It's history, literally and figuratively. But I'm so tired of the clay saying, God, let me tell you what I am. And God's saying, no, trust me that I'm forming you the way that I want you to be. That's a hard message to hear. I get that. I understand that if I've offended you, that's not my goal But I see that as a powerful point in this passage right here. I just don't want to miss it. Because when we come to see that I am nothing but clay in his hands, though I don't necessarily care for what he's doing, I come to see the greatness of him and who he is. He's doing something good. Even if my clay is all cracked and chipped, he's doing something good, and he's going to continue to do something good. And I've got hope and promises that are rising way on the far end of it. I just don't want to miss that. All right, and here's Jesus' quote of the same passage. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right. He's talking to the religious leaders. He's talking to the kind of the same people that Malachi is talking to here in the Old Testament. Jesus is talking to kind of that same group of people, the priests and the Pharisees, and he's saying, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And I like this. Okay, this gives us that idea of fear. When we look at that master, and we should fear that master... He says, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of the Lord will be with you and keep you from sinning. So that's the same word that we saw for that idea of respect. It can mean to revere. That is accurate. But what we find here, and this is really interesting, we find that same word is used twice, or at least the root word is used twice here. So he says, do not be afraid. Do not fear. God has come to test you so that you will fear. It's, in a sense, the same word. So God's saying, don't be afraid. Be afraid. What in the world what does that mean how can I if we talk about this idea of fear of God this is this is my thinking of it the way I think I can explain it at least how I understand it I hope it uh, relates and kind of resonates with you but consider this if, if you're in the your child you're in the, the deep dark woods with a lot of scary dangerous animals we'll say there's wolves out we'll say there's cats out there's panthers there's bears whatever is is scary maybe a you know sharp pointed teeth squirrel that's rabid it makes no difference but you're in danger You're in the deep woods and you are in danger. You don't really know where you're going. It's dark. You have no tools. You have no compass. You have no weapons. You're standing there in the midst of all that is threatening around you and you have every reason to be afraid. And then you have, let's say your dad, and if you don't have a great opportunity or relationship there, someone who you do respect, whatever, who's standing there with you, and he is armed, and he has presented himself as very capable with the arms that he has, not only physical, but also his armory, whether it's knives, swords, guns, whatever, and nothing is going to touch you. We'll say those rabid squirrels are coming at you, and every one of them is cut down before they even get close to you, and he says, don't be afraid. I have everything covered nothing's going to get at you because i've got it covered but he uses also other words fear me in other words there's like wow i don't want to be a squirrel i don't want to be the wolf i don't want to be i don't want to stand in your way not that we're threatened by him cutting us down because he's already demonstrated his great protection of us don't be afraid i've got it covered And then we see this other word, fear, it's really that same word, but it's like, have just such a reverence and respect. It's like, there's nothing I can do here, but God's got this covered. That's really this message that we find in the midst of why, when we look at Exodus 20, when he says to Moses, don't be afraid, God has come to test you so that the fear of the Lord, you'll have this awesome reverence of how great he is, will be with you and keep you from sinning. We're back to Malachi. And we're going through verse... Uh, 14. I know it feels like, wow, this is going to take so long. That was the big chunk. Now what we're going to find is the accusations are going to come. And as these accusations come, I want you to hear what God is really looking for. I want you to hear the call to the heart and the call to worship. So in this passage, God is really pointing it out to the, the priests at this point. It's relevant to all of them. Similar, we saw that last week. We're going to see that again here too as it's revealed that it's broader than just to those who are religious leaders. But the religious leaders, in this sense, really have a huge responsibility, and they're going to be kind of confronted first. And it says, it is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, what? How have we shown contempt for your name? We've done everything that you've asked us to do. And he says, by offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? It's like, what are you talking about? We're following the rules. We're doing everything as you're asking. He says, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer, and this is what was happening here, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, when you give me cubic zirconia, when you know that it should be a diamond, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? And that's what they were doing. They were basically doing two things. One is either bringing themselves a diseased or lame or burdened animal. We'll look at that here in just a moment. Well, bringing those to be sacrificed, saying, Oh, this is good. We're going, look, God, we're giving this to you. And God's going like, You're intentionally giving me cubic zirconia. You're not giving me a diamond. You call it a diamond. What do you think I am, stupid? In a sense, that's what's going on in this picture he says, isn't that that wrong? We're finding Leviticus. This is where some of this comes from. Because we look at it, it's like, well, what's what's the difference? They're sacrificing an animal. What's what's the difference? Just look at the blood sacrifice. This is where it comes from. I know. We can't get into all of the sacrificial system and the points of it. And so some aspects, you're just going to have to try to gain as much as you can with the greater picture and own the real message of what's going on. He says, as a penalty for the sin, this is Leviticus chapter 5. In Leviticus basically means the law. It's part of the Pentateuch, those early writings of Moses. When he led the people out of Egypt, this is what was laid out for them, the rules. All right. As a penalty for the sin that they have committed, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb. This would have been the greater population of Israel. You're going to notice the difference between this verse and the next one. Some say female, some say male. The priests were the ones so that had to bring the male. The rest of the population could bring the female. A female lamb or a goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest, that's the role, shall make the atonement for them. So the priest would then take this animal and sacrifice it for him. And so for the priest, by taking an animal that is knowingly blemished and lame, calling it to be a good sacrifice, the priests were basically aligning and saying, oh, it's good enough for God. It's good enough. Don't you worry about it. It's good enough. Leviticus 22, verse 19 and 20 says this, you must present a male without defect from the cattle, sheep, or goats in order that they may be accepted on your behalf. Do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. And in a sense, that's what they're doing. One more verse here in Leviticus 22, verse 10. And I point this out because what would happen and what this meant for the people. But it says no one outside of a priest's family may eat the sacrificed, excuse me, no one outside of the priest's family may eat the sacred offering, nor may the guest of a priest or his hired work eat it. And so what was oftentimes done is, so I, as a, let's say, common Jew, would bring in this lamb. And the sacrifice that it would mean was significant because this was likely, for some, a very cherished animal. It's the best animal that they had, and they're here to bring it. And they're giving it to the priest, and they're recognizing as they're giving it to the priest, it's like, I'm sinful, They recognize and will acknowledge the sin that they have and they will give it to the priest and the priest will take that unblemished animal and they will sacrifice it on the altar. The one who has given it receives nothing for it they don't get money for it and this would have to compare would have been about three days wages in our area here three days wages could be anywhere from 300 to 500 dollars, give or take for the average and such consider that so here's three to five hundred dollars light it burn it up there's it's gone what did you get for it seemingly nothing but this is what god had called them to do i know we struggle oh that's not fair it's good because God is their great provider. He's going to continue to provide for them. So don't, don't miss that or get hung up on that. But as, as they're giving it to the priest, the priest would take it and he would sacrifice it. The priest and his family, on many occasions, were allowed to eat of that sacrificed animal. But the one who had given it are not. It's, just, it's an interesting piece of it, and so that's why I included that verse here so you have a better understanding of what it's actually getting at so the animal wouldn't necessarily be wasted. I kind of shared it for that. I'm not a very wasteful person, very non-wasteful person. However, I have never, I know someone who has, I will not say who it is, it's disgusting, will never take a cow that is dead, laying in the mud, and eat the top half and let the other half rot. Unbelievable. Maybe I'll have him tell you sometime. Malachi, chapter 1, verse 8. He says, take these offerings, these these complacent offerings, and say, give them to your governor and see if they'd be pleased. And they would have had taxes to pay at that time. It would be similar if the government said, here's the deal, you owe me $20,000 in back taxes. Oh, man. Well, I have this old bicycle. Would you take that as payment for the $20,000? We'll call it good. And the government is going to say, No. Absolutely not. I don't want your bicycle. I want the $20,000. In the same way, that's really kind of what we're, we're looking at here in comparison. So these people would have given to the governor all that the governor demanded because they feared the governor. But they won't give to God what he's asking because they don't fear and respect God. Now, I love this. He says, now plead with God to be gracious to us. Recognize this. This is really what he's saying. Please hear this. You've messed up. You've sinned. What you've been doing, your acts, they're sinful. You've sinned. Ask God to be gracious, because God is a gracious God. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? He's not going to accept that. But yet, he's a gracious God, and we see it. He gave, and we see it in the New Testament. He gave the sacrifice to them. Well, we keep giving you bad stuff, bad stuff, bad stuff. Well, oh, it's good, it's good. No, it's not. It's it's it's, it's a diamond. No, it's not. It's cubic zirconium. I'm not stupid. And then what he's like, he does is like here, I have the diamond, and he gives us the diamond, and he says, "Let this be relationship," and we give the diamond back. Do, do you see how that works? And maybe it's not registering. It, it's, it's profound to me, and it's approaching it with a love and a heart. Verse 10 says, oh, oh, if you guys ask me for grace, and then he says, oh, that I would rather you just shut the temple doors. Stop all of the pretending. Stop all of the fake worship. I'd rather you just shut the doors. And he says, so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. It's meaningless when you take me so complacently. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and will I accept no offering from your hands? He says in Hosea 6, he says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Sometimes we get so set on, it's like, oh, i got to please God, i got to please God. If you didn't learn through Galatians, as we went through Galatians, that God is a God of grace, and he's paid the penalty, and he has done the work, and all we have to do is receive that free grace, then you miss the message of Galatians. And this is that same message that we're having here. God desires your heart not necessarily your offerings. If you, how does it, Walter Kaiser had a quote, something along these lines, two two things come to my mind. He says, you know, consider the giving. Sometimes we give, we give exorbitantly because of, oh, God will be pleased with me, or I want people to see what I do as, oh, wow, that person's really spiritual. That's irrelevant. God doesn't want us to do that. He would rather the doors be shut than to experience that. And yet he wants us to be generous givers. And so, Walter Kaiser suggests basically this. He says, consider putting yourself in the offering plate first before the offering ever touches it. In other words, God wants you before he wants your gift. God wants you before he wants your service and all that you have to offer and to help. You You can't earn his acceptance. He just wants you. And so, as we gather, he wants you to approach this space He wants you to approach this time when we get into the Word. He wants you to approach the songs that Lane and the worship team lead us in. Not as any kind of a criticism of like, Oh man, I like that song, I don't like that song. I'm not coming down on anyone, don't misunderstand me. I'm I'm speaking for myself more than anything here. It's a picture of, Oh Lord, show me your greatness that I can worship you. He wants you. He wants you to come before him in relationship. He's given you the diamond. All you have to do is give it back. He says then, it doesn't matter what you do. You can't stop it. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where the sun sets. In every place, incense, pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations. Why? Because he is who he is. He is great, and you can't stop it. And when someone comes to realize the greatness of God, everything else doesn't matter. And they recognize, I have no choice. When I see the greatness of God, I have no choice but to worship Him. But if you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and the food is contemptible, and you say, what a burden, and you sniff at at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty, when you bring injured and lame, diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his lock. In other words, he's saying, you've got two rings. I've given you the diamond one and you're holding on to that one for yourself, and you're giving the cubic zirconia instead. Come on. Give to God what is his. He's not asking you to empty your wallets necessarily and pour it all out. That's not You're missing the point. He's not asking you to... He might, at some point, the Holy Spirit might lead you to do something like that. That's a different question. We're looking at the idea of acceptance. Right now, what he's wanting from every believer in Jesus Christ, you know what he wants? He wants you. He wants your worship not because somehow it puffs him up he wants your worship because it's relationship it's connecting he wants you he wants your heart he wants you to be real not pretend not fake not posing not like oh look at me i'm all spirit he wants you and all of your brokenness all of your goodness and your your gifts and your talents but also how you lack. He wants your moles. He wants your warts. He wants your baldness and your grayness. He wants your bad back. He wants your aching knees. And that's just a description of me. He wants you. And he wants you desperately. He wants to have that relationship. He doesn't need your diamond ring. Sarah didn't need a diamond ring. But I had no choice but to bring her a diamond ring. Why? Because I was drawn by my heart for love. That's the picture that we're seeing here. I'm convinced of it. God's saying, I want to love you, and I want you to love me. I want relationship. And when we come to see the greatness of God, I'm convinced that our worship will follow. So as we now worship, you may like the songs, you may not like the song. That's irrelevant. What is relevant is where your heart is at right now as you understand the greatness of God. And as you come to see the greatness of God and you are real and genuine, this is where my heart's at, Lord. I'm kind of upset with you right now. I can't hide that. Don't pretend. But then invite the Spirit, Lord, I need to see, I need to some, maybe I need to see your goodness because I'm not seeing it. Invite him to show you his goodness. Invite him to show you his greatness and then say, Lord, do that work in me so that I can worship you. Some of you need that. Some of you, maybe this is a message you've heard for the first time. I want you to understand, you are loved more than you will ever know by the God of the universe. He wouldn't change a thing about you. He didn't make a mistake on it. So it's okay to approach it and say, Lord, I need you to really receive my heart.